Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is legendary importer and relentless advocate for the wines of Spain, Jorge Ordonez. Jorge has twice been named one of the top 20 wine personalities of the year by Robert Parker Jr. He has received the Golden Grape Award from Food and Wine Magazine, um, the Spanish Premio Nacional de Gastronomía Award, and in 2008, uh, Jorge was named Luminary of the Year at the Nantucket Wine Festival, which was the first time uh, the award had been bestowed. And what he is most proud of is creating a market for Spanish wines by celebrating its history and indigenous varietals while making Spanish grape growers and winemakers believe that their wines deserve a place alongside the greatest wines of the world. Welcome, Jorge. Thank you, MJ. Well, um, first of all, thank you for being here. Uh, Victor has been working on this for like over a year now, so I'm glad we could finally make this happen. Um, uh, what uh, you know, I know you brought a number of wines. What's the first wine that we're going to be uh, drinking uh, today? La Caña Navia, 1920. It's an Albariño. Okay. And um, I brought it because it's a good wine, but also because it, it, it gives uh, the first step of bringing something else from Spain beside Rioja into the market. I introduced the category in 1991. I would say for six, seven years, I was the solo importer of Albariño in the market. People look at me like I have three eyes. Three, three, three eyes or three heads. And uh, you know, the, the competitors were selling the white wines from Spain at four and a half. Dollars a piece. I was selling for twelve and a half. Jean Galtieri, my importer at the time uh, of Middleton Wine Imports, told me that at best I would be lucky if I can sell 150 cases in the state of New York a year. Well, I'm sure we're going to get to how you came to dominate uh, and sell more than that. But let's start at the beginning. Um, you're from Malaga, correct? Malaga. Malaga. Okay, so um, I don't really know where that is, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners don't. So tell everybody, obviously, it's related to Spain, but it, it, it's a, as an island? or No, Malaga is a city by Mediterranean. Okay. And it's a straight line going south from Madrid. Okay. So you throw an arrow directly south until you arrive to the water, and the water is Malaga. It's a city founded by the Phoenicians, uh, called by then Malacca, mm -hmm. uh, 2,800 years ago that we know. And um, and the reason the weather is because the weather is fantastic, and accidentally they were looking for tin, and they found good weather, olives and <laughs> stuff like that. So <laughs> I say, we'll stay here. They were looking for tin. <laughs> yes. But stayed for the olives and the weather. Yeah, they found in the way also plenty of silver. Okay. In Cadiz, next door to us, gold and everything. So they found everything else but tin. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, I know I know Spain has an interesting history. So you said that was founded by the Phoenicians. Yes. Um, did it used to be its own state? Like, kind of how? What was that? How did it? Um, how did it evolve to where your family was there? How long has your family been there, and how did it evolve uh, as a city state? Um, well, I mean, Malaga is a it's a province, but also the name of a city. Okay. Uh, the Phoenicians and other cultures, like the Greeks later on, the Romans open uh, cities, uh, trading post, okay. rather than major thinking situations. With the time, they became provinces of the Roman Empire, and so on. My family, I don't know, I mean, my family originally comes from Antequera, a town of the Ordonez last name, mm -hmm. a town in the interior of uh, Malaga, the province. Right? My mother comes from Madrid, so it's uh, kind of like 
you know, run all over the Spain. <laughs> from you're you're kind of from there. Okay, so um, you um, what was it like growing up uh, at that time? Is it, it what what's the economy like? Was it uh, agriculture? Was it uh, maritime sea? Because I know you we've was, talked about fish a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it was a it, it, it was important harbor. You know, a lot of business at the harbor of Malaga. Mm, a lot of shipping. I remember the the people loading bags of flour on the bags <laughs> and putting a pallet and then uh, with the old cranes going into the boat. And it was an agricultural province. Uh, Malaga is the second largest producer in Spain of olives, okay. uh, olive oil. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's pretty big. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like kind of primitive. You go waiting for the, tr the bus to take me to to the school, you could see the bunch of donkeys attached <laughs> to each other by a rope, carrying bush to start the fire and aromatize the ovens in the ovens in which they will make the brick ovens to make the bread, stuff like that. The fishermen used to go through the streets with two buckets um, and selling the fish that they got that morning. So it was a complete different thing. Yeah. The markets were bustling, excellent food. I remember in the square seeing plenty of turkeys, black <laughs> turkeys going out, <laughs> escaping from the guy who was going to cut the head off. <laughs> I remember my, my grandmother bringing a turkey home. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the later on killed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of fitting. Um, we're actually recording this like uh, about six days before Thanksgiving, so I, I think Jorge's got turkey on his mind. I'm not, <laughs> not too sure. <laughs> Well, actually, I have suckling pig. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Um, so, um, growing up, uh, you know, uh, what's what was it like for you growing up? Like, uh, did you play soccer? Did you, I mean, did you yeah. have to work? Like, what was kind of like your? I played soccer um, and until I stopped playing soccer because uh, I broke the leg of uh, um, of a friend of mine. Um, I was a defense player, mm -hmm. so it was too tough. Mm -hmm. So I said, no more soccer. <laughs> Also, my grandfather died of a soccer game of, uh, you know, uh, um, how do you call it, uh, attack, attack, heart attack. So they didn't bring good memories. Okay. I was a Boy Scout. I went to the mountains. Okay. And, and I did all kind of shit there. <laughs> I, I walked the mountains by myself with a backpack. I went to the highest mountain in Spain several times. Uh, and later on, I went to the university because being uh, in contact with nature, I wanted to be a, an agriculture engineer. Okay. No, uh, sorry, I want to be a mountain engineer. Okay. But my parents say, no, you're not going that far. Uh, stay here and uh, study something similar, which is agriculture engineering, which is not similar at all because a big difference between potatoes and trees. Um, but uh, so that's why I didn't feel like ended up make a, my career being in an office. So by third uh, level, of, uh, it was five levels of an agricultural engineering, very tough career to do a lot of um, technical mm -hmm. studies. Um, I went back to Malaga and I started working with my father, okay. which I always did since I was around 12 years old. I went in the mornings and in the evenings during the summer and I worked um, in the delivery of the warehouse, unloading trucks in the summer um, delivering outside, collecting bills, doing whatever, cleaning the warehouse. I did everything 
that a distributor can do. Mm -hmm. So then by 83, I started in, uh, in the distribution company of my father, which I already work, mm -hmm. um, but summer, uh, a little bit in the summer, a couple of months, three months, full time. And then four, month, uh, four years later, by 87, I came here in September of 87. That's the quick. That's a quick? A uh, quick. So, <laughs> but so your family had a wine business, though, correct? That's correct. When, okay. Founded by my grandfather. Okay. My father was a distributor in Malaga. Okay. But, but the whole idea started with my grandfather, who got the agency of La Rioja Alta Winery, which, you know, is yeah, Leroy, okay. super prestigious mm -hmm. winery from Rioja. And I think still we are the oldest distributors in the world, or La Rioja Alta, because I've been already 60 years on, on the, or maybe more years uh, on the making with these people, all right? So that we have that, we have some fancy foods, we have caviar, we have truffles, we <laughs> a lot of kind of good things there in the warehouse. Um, I, luckily enough, I was uh, um, happy to have the storage of the caviar in my own apartment, <laughs> 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 which made my friends very happy from time to time. And, um, and I basically, I, I changed a little bit the company, the philosophy going from more bulky wines um, uh, and food to just fine wine. Okay. So, that's yeah. All, all my, that's all I brought to the company mm -hmm. during a four, four years period that I worked with my brother, mm -hmm. actual owner of the company, my brother Javier. Okay. Um, so, being that um, your, your family was in the wine business, um, Wine was always on the table at meals when you had sat down. That's correct, though. Yeah. Um, uh, and what was kind of like uh, the wine situation uh, in, uh, you know, from your grant? So you had La Rioja Alta, which is high end, but you mentioned it was a lot of um, bulk stuff. So was that the bulk majority? Stuff. No, I mean, most of the business. Um the, the good houses in Spain were little at the time. We're talking about mainly Rioja, Ribera Duero didn't exist. Mm -hmm. We're talking about 30, uh, 40 years ago. I mean, <laughs> Ribera Duero was like, what? I mean, the only wine from Ribera Duero sold at the time was Mega Sicilia. Depending where you were in Madrid, it was more sophistication. Mm -hmm. But in the south, uh, most of the people drink plenty of white and rosé and cooked wine, uh, wines that were poorly stored and transferred. Uh, trans oh, it's cooked. Yeah, <laughs> cooked uh, yeah. wine, uh, especially at the other house. I remember going to El, El Cabra, uh, mm -hmm. the goat, that's the nickname of a customer of mine, uh, to sell him wine, and I say, Jorge, you're gonna have to take all these hundred cases that you sold me like three months ago. He said, well, it's all cooked. You see the color of the white is orange. Will have be a great wine for the times that are coming. Yeah, I know. Actually, be, you know, we could, uh, you just missed the raw wine because you just unloaded those cases over there. Yeah, They'd have thought it was great. The guy left, <laughs> left the wine at approximately 120 degrees Fahrenheit the whole summer. So what the hell you want? Well, that was very common. So it was very common to go to a restaurant in the summer to go seafood by the sea and order a bowl of Viñardanza. We'll, we'll stand better the heat. And they put it in an ice packet and you drink the Rioja 
uh, cold because otherwise the room temperature was undrinkable. Mm. So the situation, the tracks were not refrigerated. Still, they are not refrigerated today. There were houses, still many of them are not refrigerated for wine. So coming from there, uh, when I arrived here, I said, shit, the same thing happened here with our Spanish wines. Yeah. So I realized that many of the wines, when I came here, the Spanish wines that I knew there, uh, when you drink them here, were completely cooked. Yeah. So, so this is like, when did you first notice that problem? Uh, like about kind of like the storage and treatment of wine? Well, I noticed because I was buying the few things that were out there. Okay. There were not too many wineries. I tried to drink as many possible things that were known, but I found a common thread that the wine was uh, fucked up, basically. <laughs> and I, when I start exporting wine here, or importing, whatever you want to call it, I realized of the resistant, uh, resistant offer by the importers to bring reefer containers from Spain. Okay. So it's after all Spanish wine. It's like, I mean, like, uh, how the hell you want to succeed here? And we have big fights. Uh, for the first years, it was a pill battle because nobody wanted to buy a Spanish wine to start with. Uh, you know, there were five brands of Spain in the market, basically. Uh, and that was a, about it. When I came here was Carl, Carl Ressler, a friend of mine that later became, from Wilton, Connecticut, bringing a few cases of, of Vineyard Danza, mm -hmm. sold to some of the top stores in the city, and that was it. Uh, Tondonia was selling a little bit with Admiral Catani in New Jersey, who was the national importer. And, and I realized that, uh, you know, the quality of the wine and the perception of the American market was bad because we cheap the wines in poor condition, not because the wines, went, the wines were bad originally. And so that's how I started the crusade, fighting with all the importers. You had to bring me uh, to one point that I wrote a letter to all of them and said, you want to buy wine from me, you have to use a reefer container. But then I realized that was not enough because the guy spent more money. But what happened with the transportation in Spain? So I started shipping the wine refrigerated from every winery to Spain to the shipping point that was the harbor of Bilbao. Then I realized, well, they don't have a, a refrigerator warehouse. I fought with Hillerand, now Gori, now DHL company, mm -hmm. uh, for three years until I obtained the first refrigerator warehouse for wine in a harbor in Spain. That was an achievement, three years later. So three years later, I forgot when it was that, I'm talking about maybe 15 years ago, I was able to have a full integrated system of refrigerator to bring in the wine to America. That single year, my sales went up 30% in America. They paid off. Yeah. So how old are you in 1987? Oh, I'm 64 right now. You can make the numbers. Okay. I was born in 1958. Okay. So, yeah, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, 29. Um, no, 87. I was eight. Yeah, 19. Yeah, 29. So, here's this 29 year old kid <laughs> from Spain um, bringing new wines to the market. Um, mm -hmm. And, like, and like I, 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 you, you talked about, like, um, 
battling all the battles you had to do. Um, mm -hmm. Where did you get this notion to uh, to take on, you know, New York and the rest of the world with Spanish wine? Well, I was here. I okay. knew the wine business a little bit. Mm -hmm. I I was my head was um, full of itself, <laughs> thinking that because I was in the Spanish wine business mm -hmm. over there, I would conquer and destroy the, spa the, the market in America for the Spanish wines. Initially, it was a very humble experience because it took me one year to get the first container order that took another year to be sold in Massachusetts to a small company called MRR Traders, owned by Leo Seafoods okay. at the time. And a good friend of mine today was the guy that saved my ass because <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to do without f such an order. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. for, for many years, uh, sales were not there. It took seven years to sell 30,000 cases in America. We went calling doors, in, uh, distributors in, in uh, New Jersey, closest area, Connecticut, New York mainly, we changed distributors until we found the right one, so-called. But I have been uh, working, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, with the pioneers of uh, distribution of Spanish wines. Before I arrived in 1986, I think was found Classic Wine Imports with uh, Steve Messler and Almodela de Laguna, which were truly pioneers with uh, their Pesquera wine. Mm -hmm. um, and that was inspirational for me, uh, knowing they were doing a Verdejo from Reda. So I started thinking, well, maybe it's time to sell something else because I'm not selling very well my Rioja here, all right? So I figured out what is not in the market that is could be interesting, and the first one was Albariño in 1991. So, like you said, so you are you introduced Albariño pretty much to yes. the American market. Yes. Sales today of Albariño here might be around 400,000 cases or something like that. Being uh, you know, a number of brands with one that is bigger than anything, <laughs> right, any other right. people, yeah. because it's a cop. But I mean, and then we got into that philosophy, and then uh, a few years later, we introduced Chacolí, where Chac imagine at the beginning of trying to sell Chacolí here, people were, how you spell Well, that? I know, I was, I was gonna, I mean, for, I wanna talk about Albariño because like people, I mean, what were people, I know for me, like people need a point of reference yes. and, and people had no point of reference for Albariño. So what, how did you, what was like, how did you market it? Well, I mean, I said, this is the best Albariña I could find. <laughs> it's a very, very rare grape, which it was. Okay. The largest producer at the time, which is the largest producer today, it sold 5,000 cases a year, and today sells 500,000. So it was a rare wine that even local restaurateurs from Galicia say, this is impossible. There are no grapes of Albariño to produce wine. So when people taste it, smell it, say, wow, this is a different from a Viura from Rioja cook in a container for 25 <laughs> days coming to New York, you know? And, and I think that's how the thing started. Then by accident in one of my trips to Galicia, um, I found the grape Godello, 
And I found the first producer of Godello that at that time produced 800 cases a year. And I waited three years, finally, to that the guys make enough wine for me to ship it here. Uh, the Chacolí, it was the old importer of Chacolí, the old importer of Godello for years. I mean, so it was very difficult because we didn't have any, you know, team of people sell, selling Godello. It's not like Brunner Berliner. Everybody has a Brunner Berliner in right. the portfolio. Here it was D, the right. guy with the Alvarino and the Godello grapes that nobody heard before. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about the the Alvarino you brought because it's it's a little different. Like it's um, I don't know if it's it's like um, fine Alvarino. Like it's yes. this is an upscale bottle. What? How did you? What's the treatment on like this? What, what's the philosophy? Uh, La Cana. I say that something wrong, but how, what's the philosophy behind this wine? Well, La Cana comes uh, Navia. It comes from two vineyards, one planted in 1970 and the other one in 1978, I believe. Um, and wine is uh, next to a church of the 18th century, and a few miles away from the inlet, and the other is dressed in the inlet. I mean, like you could cast a uh, fishing rod from your vineyard and maybe catch a striped bass. <laughs> um, and so it's completely different scenarios, very salty wine um, from the coolest, more Atlantic part of the production of Albariño, which is the Valley of Sarnes. It's kind of a peninsula surrounded by water in the north, south, and in the front. Mm -hmm. And produce wines that are very steely, very austere, mm -hmm. with great pH, and wines that can last. I mean, we opened recently at 2010, so an Albariño uh, 12 years old. The making of the wine is um, barrel fermented in large format, 500 and 600 liters. Why? Because um, many of the making of the wines, I try to be kind of romantic, old-fashioned, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and certainly all, all the Albariños before they came, the stainless steel, were made in chestnut barrels. You know, because chestnut is very commonly found in Galicia. Okay. So I said, I'm going to make something like that. Because the first trip I went to over there, in the island of Ogrove, before having a big fiesta or shellfish, um, <laughs> I enjoy a wine called by uh, Albariño by El Cura. El Cura means the priest. Okay. Who on the side, may, on top of being a priest, makes some bottles of wine. And it was uh, barrel fermented, and it was impressive. When I asked the waiter, with no label, what was the alcohol content, he said, well, the right one, 13.5%. was outstanding wine. I, and if you want to visit many other wineries, there were many were all together. Mm -hmm. There seven or eight. Uh, you couldn't find anything similar. So I said, I'm going to make something like that. That's all. Now, the, now uh, fortunately enough, we have a collection, I would say 10, 12 uh, producers making wines of this level of quality. Mm -hmm. Evidently, each one is made different. We stir the lees. Some people don't stir the lees. So, so kind of um, employing some of the Burgundian techniques to Albarino. Yes. Yeah, really, yeah. I mean, that's what we do with Albarino, with the Godello, which is very prone to be kind of, we bought uh, an example here, mm -hmm. um, very similar um, products. And it worked fantastic. I mean, stainless steel is very good to make fast industrial wine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you can make oak chips and microsignation, <laughs> and here we go. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you want to make a wine um, 
the, la the last that you could drink three, four years from now, which is always my exception. Mm -hmm. I drink a lot of uh, Didier Dagenau wines when the wines were incredible. Yep. Um, so that was my say. How is possible that Spanish cannot make a good white wine mm -hmm. in the style of these people that will age? And that's the concept that finally is in this bottle. Very nice. So yeah, we should we should bring out the Godello and talk about Godello because I read somewhere and you can, um, but it was almost kind of like extinct. It was so obscure. M most of the grapes, uh, white grapes in Spain, went into extinction. Mm -hmm. it, it was like the Dust Bowl, mm -hmm. the phylloxera, uh, in a country that today is the largest vineyard on earth, and when it rains, the largest producer in the world, which is. I would say 70% most of the time. Um, the, the phylloxera was an economic disaster. Mm. So in Malaga, we lost 50% of the population in 10 years. In many areas of Galicia, the whole thing got like, they went poor. Uh, people at the time, you have to understand that these people drink four liters of wine a day per person. Wait. Okay, hold on. Yes. Four liters a day per person? Yeah. Four liters, wow. Uh, that was told to me by an old timer. I, 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 mean, I don't not believe it. It's just incredible. <laughs> well, I mean, the people didn't have much money at the time in the countryside. Mm -hmm. With the Civil War, there was no food. So people drink a lot. Um, a little bit of bread, uh, wine, and you know, and here we go. Wine is actually food. Yeah, exactly. And um, I mean, I used to, I read somewhere in a history book that uh, the Romans used to give their soldiers uh, wine. Yes, that's um, correct. Because uh, it didn't, you don't have to worry about digesting it. It gives you energy. And, you know, nice little buzz helps you kill people, you know, when you go around the world. <laughs> so committing atrocities. So why not? <laughs> that's correct. Um, anyway, so, so. Uh, Many areas like Rueda, mm -hmm. like Valdeorras, mm -hmm. like everything, uh, all the areas of white wine disappear. So that's why I grew up drinking Biura from Rioja yep. or Macabeo from Penedes. Mm -hmm. That was it. Mm -hmm. There was no other option in the country. So imagine that. That's pretty boring. Uh, I mean, but I mean, it's it's better than Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc or whatever you know most people drink here. I mean, I think I, I agree because obviously, like you said, there's there's was a lot of variety that went away. But I mean, to me, like so these things these things are incredible. That we yeah. just recover wines, uh, grapes, flavors that were gone. So um, and so it took a long time, but here we are. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, you, you could talk about every Spanish variety in many ways. Each one has its own characteristic, but these two is an example of that. Rueda, when I came here, was 1,200 hectares of vineyards. Okay. Of those, mm, a lot of them, at least registered, were Palomino, because it was the grape that was planted all over Galicia and Rueda. was Palomino. It wasn't, didn't make any... Planted after the okay. I have to fly. Okay. So it didn't make any sense because the Palomino is fantastic to make cherry wines, yep. but it's horrendous in Rueda or super horrendous in Galicia where it produced 35 to 40 tons per hectare. Mm. That's pretty big. So, yeah, that's. Um, 
So you get out of control. <laughs> That's greedy. That's just obsessive. No, That's it's just excessive. No, the, the, the vine is uh, used to grow in a very dry environment. Mm -hmm. Once you get the rainy Galicia, here you have production. Yeah. Um, so this one is, um, they're so different, which makes sense, but. Yeah, it's a different grape. But The technique of making both wines is the same. Okay. The barrels are the same. But the grape is different, and the soil is different. Here in the first one, the Alvarino, sandy soils of granite. Mm -hmm. They're found in that valley. Over there is black slate. Mm -hmm. Different weather conditions. Atlantic, Mediterranean, Atlantic, continental, uh, Mediterranean. Very drastic temperatures, uh, different between summer and winter. Mm. And... Um, when actually you mentioned this, but so you you kind of cracked the Albareño market, so you, you got that going. Yeah. Um, then did they like, oh God, here comes Jorge again with some crazy obscure grape from Spain? Um, what are you talking about, Godello? Um, what was the reaction when you started introducing these wines to the market? Well, let's talk about the, a winery that I found in the mountains mm -hmm. in a monastery from the 13th century. And I was like, uh, I was surprised. Um, I told the story that when I found the bottle, uh, I went to a restaurant, of course, in Galicia, mm -hmm. and I saw the bottle there, and it has the coat of arms of the Pope. Uh, I said, what the hell is that? And I asked the owner, and he said, yes, the Pope uh, Boltigua was having lunch here like a month and a half ago by himself. He didn't allow anyone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's the wine that we serve him. And the Godello, from okay. Bodegas Godeval. Okay. And I found the wine remarkable, and I said this is very mineral, very aromatic, quite different of the Albariño, the pH a little bit higher, but it's still low, mm -hmm. and produce a different profile of wine. People didn't like it at the beginning, mm -hmm. <laughs> too expensive again, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, little by little, and the walls of Jericho came down. <laughs> After giving <laughs> 300 rounds to Erico. <laughs> All right. So um, you're in the market. Um, things are growing. So when would you say – so you started uh, – you were here in 87, right? That's yeah. correct. Okay. Um, when we, what would you say was like um, – like your big, what was like your big breakthrough wine or what was like? Well, I mean, the, the, at the beginning, we start having troubles with selling Rioja wines. I came with a secondary wine area of Rioja because La Rioja Alta, Normuga, trust a young guy in the American market. So okay. They told me basically when you grow older, <laughs> and stronger, and <laughs> you grow hair in your pubes, <laughs> come back and talk to us. And so we'll maybe consider your offering. Mm -hmm. So I brought uh, a winery, Obscure, that I used to sell a lot in Malaga, who has, from Rioja, who has attached to it, basically attached, a winery from Navarra. And voila, he has started the Grenache game. Grenache or Garnacha, a grape mm -hmm. absolutely national, I mean, the Spanish grape, uh, was unknown even even by the Spanish people in general. Really? And here, nobody paid attention to it. Yeah. The prices were right, so we started selling 
good quantities of that, 10,000 cases. Unfortunately, uh, four years later, the company went belly up, mm. you know, and I was hanging dry like a codfish because it was the only company I was using beside a cava producer. So uh, when I was having my fried churros, fried dough mm -hmm. in the morning, and I heard about the going the company up by the owner, belly up, mm -hmm. uh, I almost choked. But that same day, I took the resolution to fix it. And um, I called my friends in Rioja, which I met in 1998, the Gurem family from San Vicente de la Son Sierra, and we launched the winery big time. Because I have kind of an exclusivity with the people of Gurpegi, and I told I cannot do anything. We, we did side things, but not nothing major. So that's when I start firmly working with the Gurim, uh, a family-owned company, a small bodega in Rioja, traditional, de mi maceración carbonique, mm -hmm. in the best terroir of Rioja. Today is considered one of the best uh, holdings in Rioja of a state bottled wine. They have four wineries, and they have more state bottled single vineyards than anyone else although the appellation doesn't recognize it. That helped me a lot, because they have a Rioja called Codice that we used to sell like peanuts. Um, and the Crianza was smooth, fantastic, super elegante. It wasn't modern, but it was like perfecto for the market. The fruit from those vineyards is incredible. Then I said, what am I gonna do with the Grenache? I have to substitute my 10,000 cases in market. Mm -hmm. I went to Aragon. And I uh, spent a week, you know, in that same trip, visiting all the vineyards and wineries, rather, in Aragon, in the area of production of Garnacha, which is Calatayud and Campo de Borja. And then I hook up with a famous winery, I mean, a famous co-op, you know, that was Bodegas Borsal. And then with those two, I managed to start growing cells and adding things. Soon enough came Remeyuri. Then Muga finally said, yes, we're gonna go work with you um, because they were selling 140 cases in one year in the whole country. I said, I think I can do more. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so, I mean, basically we saw grow, I saw grow Muga to success because I already worked with them in Spain. Uh, there is two generations that I met. I have now three generations that I met, uh, Bodegas, Sierra Cantabria, a good group, and I saw them grow more to more success because Muga was pre-established a little bit, uh, but not internationally like it's today. Mm -hmm. It was in the developing years to be a great success story. And the same thing with the Gurem. Uh, I found, as I said, the Chacolí people, I went to the Canary Islands and I brought the first El Grifo Malvasia when nobody ever heard where is Canary Islands. I'm talking about this 15, 20 years ago. Uh, having the first sparkling by accident uh, Canary Islands Malvasia because uh, two containers referment when they arrive here <laughs> due to low levels of sulfur. And it was not intentional, it was an accident. You were trying to, you see, you were a natural wine pioneer there, right? Yes. <laughs> well, actually, it was so natural that one of the wines of a famous cop um, got uh, with a very rare illness that a few people have seen it currently, which is called the grease of wine. The wine became 
with the consistency of motor oil. Wow, wow. It, it occurs during the malolactic fermentation mm -hmm. with uh, levels of high sugar, residual sugar levels, and high pH, mm -hmm. and voila. You have a beautiful situation. So you are, you are serving the wine, it's a gloop, gloop, gloop. <laughs> so that was only, we have to send back to Europe 11,000 cases of wine. And uh, the next year when the sales went down, I say, it's your fault, you don't try enough. <laughs> I have seen all kind of problems in the thing. So thanks God I finally, I met with ETS laboratories in California and I'm addicted to them. So I analyze the wines, the corks, everything to make sure, because I, I, I believe in traditional viticulture, okay. traditional practices, mm -hmm. obviously no systemic products, mm, no chemicals, just the regular sulfur, copper sulfate, organic fertilization, all binds, no irrigation, which I think is more important than any other thing of the natural practices. If you are uh, already adding water, you're fucking up the project <laughs> because the plant, the plant regulates itself and it produces better grapes when there is less water or no fertilization or less fertility. So I believe in that part. What I don't believe in having dirty wines. Mm -hmm. So I make every single effort, not trying to minimize the addition of sulfur in order to control bacteria in wine, which destroy wine, mm -hmm. whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. Some people like destroy wine. Right. Um, it's true. Uh, but I mean, I cannot do, <laughs> it's like, that's their own taste. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. In, 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 in for the people that have headaches in, with sulfur in the bottle, I have to say one of the major problems is not the sulfites that we add, is the sulfur compounds that we create in reductive winemaking, mm. being the sulfur, sulfides, mm. which are, we analyze because 50% mm, of population genetically, mm -hmm. I don't know, is defective or lucky enough not to smell them. Well. Uh, <laughs> as a professor <coughs> of uh, Cornell University mm -hmm. told me once, um, but I mean, for me, it's something unbearable. I mean, like, uh, this year so far, my wineries, only my winery has spent 45,000, no, 60,000 uh, dollars in analysis in California of quality control. So you send, so you send samples to Davis? Yes. Yeah. No, Davis, no. 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 A, a company in California, okay. in a, a Santa Elena, Helena, California okay. called ETS. Who runs that? Uh, Gordon Burns. Okay. Okay. The owner. Yeah. Very cool. So um, you mentioned, uh, I want to go back because I love Grenache, Garnaca. Yeah. Um, that was, uh, I'm not sure what wine that was, but I, I remember uh, Robert Parker loved, it was like, so it was like 98, it was like an $8 bottle of Grenache. It was like his house wine. Mm -hmm. um, what is it, what is it about, the regions where Garnaca grows that make it different from, say, Shadow Enough to Pop. Yeah. Like, what what, what do you think is uh, stylistically or uh, why is actually Garnaca, Spanish Grenache, so vastly different? Well, I think it because it's the original Garnacha. So it's the original. So we, the, the one from Aragon, mm -hmm. we go to Madrid, it's not the same. In Catalonia, we may found it, but normally it's not the same. Okay. And so kind of kind of like the garnacha from there, when it's made, 
in traditional viticulture, like goble, head prune, vineyards, no irrigation, again, stuff like that. You could get wines as uh, dark as a Cabernet Sauvignon mm -hmm. because low yields, simple. <laughs> so if you put a lot of water, then you get in the lighter stuff, which you know, most of the garnachas from other countries that you see, they are much lighter. Yeah, they are much lighter because instead of producing five tons, four tons per hectare from a vineyard 80 years old, mm -hmm. you produce 15. <laughs> it's <very> simple. <laughs> and uh, nobody tell, should tell me ever that a good garnacha should be light in color mm. or light in flavor mm. because it's a question of that we are starting to forget what a good wine should should be. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you give me a vineyard or garnacha that is 60 years old, I would never change it for 10, 10 times bigger land piece of a wine that is a vineyard that is 10 years old. Gotcha, gotcha. N needless to say, I wouldn't change it for 50 hectares of wire vineyard. Mm -hmm. Because the wire on top of that increased production. We have seen situations in which people buy productive clones from France. I don't say that every Grenache in France mm -hmm. is productive, but they buy the productive industrial clone of Grenache, and production goes three times wow. up wow. in Campo de Borja, mm -hmm. for example, or in Calatayud. So you tell me what is better. Uh, can you make a natural one with that? Is that fashionable? You can make a natural wine with anything if you talk to uh, a lot of uh, yeah, uh, burgeoning winemakers. Yes, there is no regulation. Right. But the, but the reality is one of the blessings that we have in Spain is the largest collection on top of vineyards in the world, but of old vines. So you have the largest collection of old vines anywhere in the world. So these two, yeah. wines, these two wines are old vines. Yeah. I mean, and people they, don't think of old white wines with old vines for whatever reason. It, it gets I, lost on us, right? I don't understand why <laughs> yeah. they shouldn't think about it. Right. Um, I mean, if I, I have the money, I could buy everything that is old. <laughs> the problem is the companies <coughs> look for the money. And old means low yields. Simple. Yeah, I mean, that's right. That becomes a challenge um, for people. Um, I mean, it, when... when uh, Sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. When Pesquera came out mm -hmm. here, it was a monster wine. Yeah. Incredible wine. Yeah. Throw sediments because it wasn't filtered or stabilized. So one finger of sediments. But the wine was incredible. Mm -hmm. Why? The vineyards were <laughs> 90 years old. Yeah. I yeah. mean, when a few years later they changed, different. Right. When uh, Teofilo Reyes, the ex winemaker of Pesquera, mm -hmm. came out, mm -hmm. both of them died, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Uh, the wine got monster wine again. Well, the first wine from Spain that got the top 10 of the year in the wine the spectator, no wine advocate. So, um, you know, when the kids of Teofilo Reyes decide to make money and make from uh, wire trellis vineyards, the brand disappeared. They have to sell the winery, sales went here to hell. And that wasn't my story. So if you want to make great wine, if you are a decent winemaker, you can make great wines always with old vines. I question the possibility of making great wine with a 15-year-old vineyard. Yeah, um, because that's what people do. I mean, people, yeah, I know. people, especially in the States, people will buy a vineyard. People, I mean, that's one of the things that 
I'm sad about with California uh, is that um, because of the judgment of Paris, people pulled out like old vine vines that that the immigrants brought to plant cab to plant Cabernet Sauvignon, and even to this day, someone will buy a vineyard and they want to make Cabernet Sauvignon, so they'll they'll pull up what's there, and you know, four years later, they start making wine off these young vines. Um, and and they're irrigated too. <laughs> That's all thing. No, you have to make sure that the production is up, right? And of course, the alcohol down, right? You know, I mean, some people tell me in Spain, it's like, why you don't make lighter wines with uh, not so much alcohol? I say because I make garnacha, uh, and Grenache or garnacha yep. is ripe above fourteen and a half percent by volume. Exactly. And if it, on top of that, it comes from a vineyard that is a thousand meter or more than three thousand feet in elevation. A Mediterranean gar garnacha, mm -hmm. uh, it will mature or ripen very slowly, mm -hmm. producing the great grapes, but then higher alcohol, 15.5% by volume. Uh, the solution, many people do, to be fashionable, they add water. They water it down, they which is crazy. <laughs> you could water it down three ways, I mean, two ways. When the wine is finished, which you know is very common practice. Mm -hmm that nobody wants to talk about it. Sure. But I talk because I don't do it. Yeah. And and the other is, you know, watering down the, your vineyard. Simple. Right, right. And, and the multiplying the production for three. Yeah. Bigger grapes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've seen a lot. I mean, these. I don't know if there was a trend before, but I, when I started in the late 90s, um, you know, I fell in love with big wines, you know, just, you know, because they were riper, they had more flavor. Yeah. Um, but now this conversation of like, like people will tell me like, oh, you love those high alcohol wines. I go, no, I like Grenache. I like Chandon with the Pop and these, these wines, they're, they, that's what they do. They like heat, they get ripe. I like Humila. I like, I like. Well, Humilla is another example. Yeah. Humilla started also around 90s, early 90s. I theorized that because the style of the market, like it in California, mm -hmm. warmer, mm -hmm. right? That the humilla grape, the humilla, the monastrel, the monastrel yeah, yeah, grape could do great. So I don't think that humilla will be where it is today, nor Alicante, if I wouldn't be involved in that trade. Most probably the vineyards will have been all outrooted. When I came there, I started with Finca Luzon. They were a producer of 12 million liters in bulk mm. and 3,000 cases bottle. When they sold it, I used to sell 40,000 cases in America. Major improvement uh, 10 years later. Not 10 years, no, actually, seven years later. Then it came the Juan Hills, which were the managers of uh, these people. And I used to make the wine for them. Every year I went there, spent a few days blending the wine for them. And now is the story of Clio El Nido, bodegas that I founded in 2002 with them. So I love those wines. Yeah. Evidently, when once you have a excellent paella making real fire, buying cuttings, with rabbit and escargot, what else you could have but a, <laughs> a great monastrel. <laughs> but people, people today, the, the producers, are trying to make lighter wines. Yeah. So they're trying to water down their wines, harvesting green. Yeah. 
So the result is, um, I mean, like uh, nothing. A yeah. shadow of the grape, no finish, tannins, they are green. And everybody say, oh, that's fantastic. That's very creative. <laughs> the wine will be gray 30 years from now. <laughs> you know, let's, let's take a good point. Let's take a quick break, and I'm going to come back with more Jorge. Uh, we'll be back in just a second. Okay, we're back. So I was laughing because, um, yeah, there's a whole trend right now. Um, first of all, um, young people in the United States, I don't know how they're in Europe, but young people in the United States aren't drinking wine. They're drinking this, these, these seltzers and all this, this stuff. Um, and then there's a whole like sober movement, which is great. Um, unless you had a problem drinking, I don't know why, if you've never drank, you're going to be sober for your whole life, but whatever floats your boat. But then, yeah, um, there's so many people, like I don't understand people who are harvesting grapes like uh, Grenache, Garnaca, or even for in the U.S., like Zinfandel. Zinfandel likes to get hot. It likes to get ripe. It likes to get, and then people are making like 11% alcohol wines from from these grapes that, and and they're kind of, they're, in, they're, uh, they're insipid. They just don't, the flavor's not there. Um, have you seen a cycle like this before? Because you've been in this business on me, or, or is this like a new era of... What to make is not... not uh, Nonsense, absolutely. I mean, it's like I suppose the people of David's, you know, mm -hmm. or other university, Cornell, mm -hmm. Wine School, and the many others in the country will be in shock mm -hmm. if uh, to uh, to read articles and opinions of certain people in the trade, mm -hmm. of certain winemakers, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, or maybe they never went to school. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. Whatever is wrong now is right. Right. Um, so. <laughs> it's like eating green tomatoes all year round. Yeah. I mean, it's like fantastic. I love green tomatoes, but uh, I prefer them ripe. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I I get to taste a lot of wines, and I am always shocked when I taste something. Um, but it's old vines, right? So there's a, a Turley, which makes big reds, and they've actually dialed down since uh, Tegan became their, their winemaker. But they, there's an old vine Senso vineyard it's like the old i think it's the oldest own rooted in the world right now it's like 120 years old in lodi that thing's 12 percent alcohol 12 and a half percent alcohol but full of flavor because it's old vines i mean he's probably getting like three berries off of each you know go uh, goblet there um but that's typically not the case i'm always i'm always impressed when when someone's coming in at 12 and a half and they're getting that full ripe fruit that a young wine in my opinion should have do you i mean how do you i think grapes are fruit so there should be some fruit in my wine particularly when it's young that's just me well i mean i agree the question there there is another question is not all the grapes ripen at the same level yeah so <laughs> never seen i mean the tempranillo the higher the altitude the higher the alcohol mm -hmm. the different varieties the higher the alcohol it's very simple i mean the 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 tempranillo in rioja is not the same one in Toro. Mm -hmm. So why they should mature at the same time? I, I don't understand. What, right. What's the point? Right. Everything cannot be the same. Right. There is no the same residual sugar in, in what I was going to say, in, uh, in a banana versus an apple. <laughs> right, right. That's very true. 
love the uh, the minerally in this and like and I know it's, and and I'm gonna say I know it was done in oak, but it's got a steely, flinty quality, um, almost uh, for people like if you like Chablis, mm -hmm. uh, this could be kind of like in your pocket, you know, of, of a white from Spain to try, you know. Um, that's what I would say, people. Yes. And uh, people say that, right? Um, well, the the whole uh, you know we have been always represented wineries from all over Spain, mm -hmm. um, bringing always being the icebreaker mm -hmm. in the market. Mm -hmm. We were the first people to bring the wines of um, Mallorca here. That happened again, like <laughs> many, years ago, <laughs> many years ago. I, I just I know Mallorca because it's like a vacation spot, like for yeah. a lot of people. There's wines there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. There's there's wine likes beautiful places. Montenegro Mant and yeah. Calet and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's pretty. I mean, they blend it with Cabernet, but mm -hmm. it always had been uh, a wine tradition in Mallorca. Um, but we brought that. And we stopped doing the logistics because the logistics at the time was a pain on the neck. It's just like by the time the wine arrived to Bilbao, it was fully cooked. Today it will be easier to bring it because more refrigeration, get, things are getting sophisticated. But at the time, it wasn't imaginable to bring two pallets of wine from Mallorca to Bilbao, the north of Spain, from the island, without the wine being cooked. So I dropped the ball and said, no more. Mm -hmm. Plus, uh, the people were drunk the whole day, the people at the winery, um, and forgot about everything. I called them. <laughs> <laughs> they were completely stunned <laughs> half of the time. And I called him and say, did you call me yesterday? Yes, I asked you for the fucking labels. <laughs> well, I, I would swear that you didn't call me whatsoever. <laughs> so I, I remember the first time I went to visit in Mallorca, the people say, I know you have the best lobster in Spain. Okay. Could you please prepare one for me or bring me to a restaurant? I pay, I invite. <laughs> uh, the guys show up, I show up there and say, where's my lobster? They say, no, no lobster today. Today we have tongue, <laughs> salad, <laughs> with capers, <laughs> vinegary, <laughs> with wine, red wine. Thank you. Thank you so much. So um, you you have this, this thing of pioneering regions. What, why, I mean... Why not? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, like, but, like, again, like, if you want to make money, right, if, you know, you're like, okay, let me just find some Cabernet Sauvignon, let's create some uh, super Spaniards and mix Merlot and Cabernet, and, you know, and I could market that, and that would seem like an easier path than, than um, highlighting these unknown wine regions. Um, uh, so, like, what are we drinking right now is the 2016? Mm -hmm. Vatan? Yeah. Okay, so, like, t talk about Toro. Yeah. Because I'm sure a lot of people listening don't even know about Toro. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, uh, you could sell authenticity. Okay. Who needs another mm -hmm. Cabernet, another Chardonnay, another, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Uh, Tempranillo is already being planted in California with not so great success because it's a grape that doesn't like high yields. Um, but I brought this bottle because it's the first region in which we built a winery. Okay. And that's the project of Numancia. Okay. A project that uh, I figured out I wanted to do. I 
became obsessive after going there and visiting the region several times, visiting all the producers. And finally, since I know winemaker, I called the Gurens and I told them what to do. I mean, I know winemaker, mm -hmm. but I can tell my winemakers how we like sure. to make a wine. Sure. You know, um, because I learned by trial and error, basically. And so, after three years, they were convinced. Now we start a project called Numantia. That was the most successful winery um, business in Spain at that time. We sold the production here in like a week. All, all, all the wine that my partners wanted to give me. And so finally we sold it to the famous company, the French company. All right. Um, but so it was an experience because when we arrived there, we were charged, are you ready? $2,000 per hectare dry farm, 130 years old vineyard of Tempranillo. <laughs> I, the people in California will find out. That I, would, I, I know, <laughs> I know. Like We bought the church of the town from the bought the church. Yeah, it was in ruins. <laughs> and the mayor of the town said, do you want to buy it? I said, of course. Uh, how much is that? So we bought the church for the 15th century for 50000 Shit. So that was the I'm moving to Spain. Uh, no longer. Now it's I the, know, same, right? the same, same hectare. Is. Now, uh, when we saw the company from A wineries in the Appalachian, we went to 70. Yeah. The success was such that the people went there like gold diggers. Right. It's uh, like anywhere else, right? Anywhere else in the world. Exactly. Um, they're going to flock to it. Um, so, again, we're, talk we're talking about place we're talking about terroir um total difference between here and rioja yeah the profile of the grape is quite different here we're talking about 730 meters above sea level plateau mm -hmm. which means that average is the highest region in spain for tempranillo we're talking about a whole region that resists the phylloxera because it's all sand, like going to the beaches of the gulf of mexico mm. with a little gravel mm -hmm. beautiful uh, with a lower layer, uh, two meters, three meters of red clay that hold the water for the root system. So you have ungrafted grapes galore. So that's why the profile of the Tempranillo is completely different. The soils are the poorest, the altitude the highest, and you have a different kit, a different Tempranillo <laughs> altogether. The only, I mean, you have to understand that people thought when the maybe you know, 20, 25 years ago, that the Spanish wines very oaky, and stuff like that. I think it's true, but for two different reasons. One's the quality of the oak. We used to use cheap American oak, and still we do. <laughs> and, uh, and the other was the transportation. Once you cook a wine, the first thing you lose is the fruit. Right. And whatever is left is the oak. Right. So I think it was, an impression and lack of quality. This uh, wine see only French oak. Okay. And I have two examples of that from Rioja here. You can see again that the wines of Rioja has improved substantially due to the use of better oak. Sure. Not reducing the amount of oak because this wine has new oak. Okay. And as well as the next ones. Mm -hmm. But I think they are in balance. Mm -hmm. Maybe wrong. Well, no, I think there is a conversation. I mean, I, you said this earlier, but people get 
a journalist, well-meaning, could be well-meaning, writes an article and people will zero in on like, oh my God, and they start thinking oak is bad. But you know, uh, high-end wines have always they love French oak. <laughs> I mean, that's that they. they I mean, how it, wines from France. Right, exactly. I mean, when people, you know, you, you get a you get a, a white berg, you know, Shoshana Manche, that shit's been cured in one hundred percent new French oak. <laughs> right, like that's just like that's just what's so. Um, but you mentioned the oak, and 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 these are big and they're robust wines. Um, what was the first wine that kind of came on Robert Parker's radar uh, out actually, of your portfolio? Actually, I think that was Coyote, uh, the wine that I mentioned from the Gurian family, mm-hmm. and a few other wines. I think we still have the issue around there. Um, I think wines from Sierra Cantabria were there, and uh, you know, we uh, well. By the way, I sent samples to him since 1987. Okay. So <laughs> seven years later, read my wines for the first time. So when I met him first time, I say, "Where you have been all these seven <laughs> years? <laughs> I could have used your help to sell the wine." Yeah, the, the hard part's over now, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. I say, "Well, I'm gonna help you a lot." I say, "Thank you." I've been selling thirty thousand cases. You could have before. <laughs> it was very, very, very difficult. The only reason of um, of the success was I have no other option. Mm. So. Yeah, talk about that. I mean, what what, what I want to do here? So yeah. I mean, yeah, you. I mean, had you left your family business? You started your own. So yes, wow, from scratch here. Wow, and so I cut the ties. So okay, I have to make it. And I mean, and I love the business. And the more I found weird things, they were great. Yep, and new grapes, uh, looking for vineyards. Um, in the middle of the night looking for a producer of Juan Garcia <laughs> or stuff like that. Um, uh, it was very interesting, let me say. It was like uh, cool because you just discovered your own country in the back back roads. And Spain being a small country, I mean, not so small, but small, Yeah, um, is way more complex than America, as you know. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean... Uh, in terms of... Uh, diversity of people, yeah. geography. Mm-hmm. We are the second highest country in Europe. Wow. So on top of being the largest vineyard on earth, we are the second highest, which is pretty good for the world warm warming. Yeah. So, you know, here we are 700 meters, mm-hmm. uh, 730 meters above Bordeaux in this. So, well, what do you think? I think, aren't they planning? They're planting different grapes in Bordeaux now. I think they're playing around with like Alicante. They're playing. They're playing around some Portuguese stuff. I heard like Tariga, um, um, Tempranillo. Tempranillo. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's the problem. <laughs> He's like that's their problem. Everybody, how is affected? Evidently, if you have a vineyard at sea level, you are screwed. Yeah. Simple. But it, but it's I never thought of it, but you're right. I mean, it's, it is that simple, right? The largest wow. wine region in the world mm-hmm. is in the plateau. Yeah. And here we have close to 300,000 hectares of vineyards, which became bulk wine mm-hmm. that many people buy. Right. And I don't want to say who because it ended up being Sue. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I know a long list of people that will be embarrassed. Yeah. Well, I, you mentioned this earlier. Um, 
you said like there was there was there was logistics. It was everything was getting cooked. But like, was there another stigma that you think Spanish wine was living under? Why it, it took so long for it to? And to me, they're still not as known as they should be. In all honesty, you well, know? I mean, I understand, but I mean, uh, you have to understand that in thirty years, thirty-five years, like thirty, thirty-six years since they started the movement by. Steve Messler and Modena, mm -hmm. uh, things have changed a lot. Still behind the time that I went to Willie Abranski Crossroads shop and told me, and say, why do you want me to sell wine? You throw me out of Spain, my, my, my people. And I say, well, I didn't throw you personally. That happened 500 years ago, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> so so uh, I don't know. Also, you have to understand we had the American uh, Spanish War, the thing over Cuba. So some people were still li alive when, uh, you know. Yeah, we forget how that, that plays into stuff. Yes. Uh, Grudges from like wars and shit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that, and that the fact that the Spanish viticulture, uh, viticulture, no, winemaking, viticulture was perfect because we didn't fuck it up. Okay. So it's very natural. Uh, it's changing. We are starting to copy Davis and and um, you know, became more French, American. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, in, in terms of wine making, it was a disaster. We only have one wine making school. I remember going to a cop that produced uh, 10 million liters, mm. and um, they have no wine maker. They have a the local pharmacist um, who went there and throw a few chemicals there. Like, uh, <laughs> wow! <laughs> and that was it. Wow! I remember tanks of. Uh, of uh, 200,000 liters with flies and cucarachas on top. <laughs> and the guy moved them with the hang yeah. to one side and got a Duralex glass for me to taste. Oh, yeah. Mm. So. Well, the crunchy stuff is always free. Uh, yes. And that would really be a natural wine if you got the cockroaches and flies all up in it. Not anything I'd want to drink. Um, Riojas. Riojas. Uh, Riojas, that comes from my first serious agency in Rioja that was the Guren family. There are four wineries in Rioja, I believe, and one in Toro, because when we finish, they open their own and they open mine. Um, this is the uh, oldest single vineyard they have, and the first vintage is 1991. Mm -hmm. It's San Vicente, it's the name of the town in which they are located, and it's a beautiful winery made stone by stone, like in the medieval ways. Um, uh, it's the 16 vintage. We made of this 4,000 cases, more or less, year in, year out. Okay. 600 meters above sea level in a single vineyard called La Canoca. And it's a classic that you could find in many fine restaurants in Spain. I mean, I love the color on both this and the Toro. Um, uh, really just... So different. The so same, different. In theory, the same grapes. Right, right. And that's what makes wine so fun once you start getting into it. Was that kind of like your thing um, that kind of had you highlight these unknown regions? Uh, because you're like, you know, so people know know about uh, Rioja, but uh, do they know about Toro? Do they, you know, the... Yeah, but I mean, it's like... Do uh, they know about single vineyards? Because, you know, single vineyards and, and all... It, that, no. That's not how the wines were sold. I mean, I saw growing this winery un, uh, under my own eyes. Okay. So uh, they build new wineries, but new vineyards, create new single vineyards. Uh, many things could happen in 35 years of history. 
Um, in the case of Moga, as I say, um, <laughs> everything I've seen, many brands that didn't exist when I started working with them. So it's long-term relationships that, um, thanks God, have last because many of them in the wine industry don't work because people get very greedy. When you sell 150,000 cases of wine, they want 300,000 sold by you. And so one of the backstabbing business that we have is the wine business, <laughs> in which people steal each other year-round. <laughs> Wineries like little boys fighting for the toys on the floor of the apartment. <laughs> I love that. Oh, little I mean, boys on the floor I, of the apartment. I, I, say, I swear to God that I never stole a winery to any of my competitors because gotcha. I thought it was absolutely immoral. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there is, there is, there is a, you know, there is a cutthroat side of the business too. Yes. I mean, we, we there is, a, it's very romantic, it is, but, but then, you know, there's business, and there's ways certain people like to do business, and, yes. and not to be overlooked. Um, but I mean, for you, you'd say it's relationships, though, right? I mean, you've worked with some of these families for Muga since 1983, a long time ago. Yeah. All right. And, uh, uh, these people. I have done business since 1988 mm -hmm. with the Sierra Cantabria, Marcos, and Miguel Angel de Gurian. Yeah. Um, and I could have done business for a longer time uh, with other people uh, that I create labels, blend the wines. Were you involved with Abadia Retuerta? Yes, I was I with Abadia so. Retuerta. Yeah. I was the guy that released the first vintage of Abadia Retuerta here. Yeah. So I was the first in many wineries, um, honestly. In a bunch of them, and still, we try to be on top of the in the edge of the future because I proud myself that I never represent any winery that called me. Mm. So far, yeah. So no, far. I hear you, man. I hear you. I, I, it's, um, it's. Uh, I, I don't necessarily. It's not the best when guests. Someone says, "Can I be on your podcast?" You know, so people reach out to me to be on the podcast, and I, I like to pick. I like, you know, I was like, who do I want to have a conversation with? And that's how this whole thing got started. I was like, hey, because we, me and you, uh, we have a we have a mutual friend, and he's the one who really put me on to Spanish wines. I want to give a shout out to Armando Luis over at uh, Sparrow. Yes, Armando Luis. Yes, he, he came uh, with me several trips to Spain. I know, yeah, I know, uh, but he's the one who really kind of opened my eyes because uh, I had worked in New York, and when I went over and worked with him. Uh, and so I was really kind of California and, uh, you know, uh, France oriented initially. Although I did have, uh, I did have a uh, Ribeiro del Toro. I had the Pescara, which yes. was, which was eye opening in 90, like 98, like. Yeah, that was fantastic. Wine. And I think it was like 12, 15 bucks back then. Ridiculous. 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 Yeah, but it went up uh, broadly. Yeah, it's gone up. It's gone up now. Yeah, no, I think ten to twenty-five. Yeah, then. now it's close to around thirty. It's between twenty-five and thirty oh, per minute. Mean, but it's still the qual. I mean, the quality's there. I'm j it just was. I mean, Armando Luis was a great defender of Spanish wines <laughs> when nobody. Yeah, he gave a shit about them. Yep, he totally taught me and put me on. And so, like, I only worked with him for like a short amount of time. But then when I went out to California. Like a, a rep came in, I ordered all that shit. Aberdeen, which I was like, "Yo, bring me, like, and you know, because I wanted to introduce people in California to him." And anybody listening, if you like, you know, um, these the, the whites we've had so far, really, um, they're finessed. Uh, the Albarino is a little bit fuller, a um, little bit uh, uh, richer than the Godello. Um, 
but they're both uh, just beautiful expressions of white wine. You, you know, if you want to try something different, you should definitely check them out. And if you like, you guys follow me. If you like big reds, uh, definitely the Vuitton. Um, but this this Rioja though is also it's it's ripe, it's big, but it's elegant. It's got it's got that finesse. You know, it doesn't have as much muscle, but it's just a beautiful wine. You know? Yeah, it's. Um is the from La Sierra, which is the the high altitude part of Rioja, considered the best terroir. Mm. So when Vega Sicilia bought land to make his winery there, they bought it there. Everybody wants to have vineyards there. Right. It's a special terroir which have big slabs of sandstone. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and in between clay with uh, calcareous clay that moves the water through, and so the vineyards have to break through the sandstone. Uh, some vineyards are impossible to plant unless you break the really? stone. Because they are, the, the soil is so shallow that the only thing the vine can do is throw the throw the um, roots to the right or Oh, okay, instead left. of going down. Mm -hmm. no, they cannot unless they break it. That's, that's, um, that's bananas. And then so, like, throughout your career, mm -hmm. and we talked about, but, uh, uh, Parker became to really he really came to enjoy your wines and a yes. lot of high scoring wines, um, and you said it took seven years for him to finally review them. But like, yes. what was it like when you got that first big score uh, from Parker? It was incredible. People, the, now everybody's calling you, right? Yeah, then he was calling me. Uh, I spent seven years calling every asshole and hanging. They were hanging the phones on me. I remember calling Cedric. <coughs> Cedric um, on, uh, in Orleans, okay. you know, the famous store yep. owner, <coughs> Cedric Martin, mm -hmm. and in my broken English, because I came without English mm -hmm. on top of that, mm -hmm. um, uh, I asked him to, he would be interested in representing my wines, and in a very nice way, he told me, call me back when you get some ratings from Parker. Wow. So when I got the first rating, I called him. I say, you told me that four years ago. <laughs> I'm here calling you. <laughs> But it was, uh, you know, finally I got a break um, because it was very difficult, let me tell you. Yeah. I mean, on top of that, selling new things. Right. You're, you're, no, I you're wouldn't say weird things. They are great. No, no they're new. They're, yeah, they're not weird. They're new and they're unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, we were talking about, you know, natural wines and, and green harvesting and low, lower alcohols and all that stuff. Um, so there also is this conversation about, um, you know, uh, 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 critics and Parker and, you know, the Parkerization of wine and, um, but as, as someone, as an importer, as, as someone, someone, um, what is your take on it? I mean, I, I'll tell you mine. I think that the American wine industry owes a ton of, uh, to Parker because he made it because he made it easy for people to understand wine by putting a number on it. Like people like, oh, he dumbed it down. But like, I think making it, he made it more accessible because in America, we're all about tests. We're all about, we're all about our American football. We're all about our sports. We're all about scores. So to act like that, you know, um, that's my take. But for you, like I said, you're- My you're, take is the same. Uh, the wine spectator gives ratings. Uh, wine spirits, uh, <laughs> everybody gives ratings. Uh, I don't see anyone that give five, five arrows which I do when I taste wine. I get excited, I give 12 hours. Right, right, right. A regular wine for me is three hours. <laughs> it's very simple. And, uh, and then, you know, sometimes I make a couple of comments because, you know, I've been in tastings 
that I have to taste in one single day 185 wines. Yeah, yeah. So you have to be very right. practical. But I think uh, the American wine industry and the world wine industry are in a lot because introduced many regions of the world that were absolutely unknown for the American consumer. Yeah. That the main established magazines were not interested in rating, number one. Second, uh, introduces to very good wines, wines of Bordeaux, yeah. which were here under value. I mean, remember Angelus being $14 in Cherry Lima. I know. Uh, the, sto the stories, <laughs> man, before, before his 82 report came out, man, like you were, I, I worked at Acker Wines and I remember Michael Capon, if you remember, Mike, Michael said, yes. like, like, he, like there was, he showed me this, like, actually they pulled up an ad, um, but like, there was like, there was like a case of Petrus was like a case was $150, a case, 12 bottles, everybody. Well. <laughs> I mean, Petrus owing a lot of money to him. I know. A lot of things. <laughs> but I, I think um, the the people have the, the freedom to choose whoever they want yeah, to Yeah, listen read. to Exactly. I don't, so I don't the, think why is a, kind of a negative reaction towards Robert Parker simply because he was famous, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. I think most of it is, what's it, uh, envidia. Jealousy. Jealousy. Yeah. yeah Haters. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, you know, I mean, it's like Frank Sinatra was great. Yeah, <laughs> it's no longer. Yeah, <laughs> but it was great. Yeah, and uh, Robert Parker was great. Right, and I think uh, we have great journalists in the Wine Spectator and other yeah. parts of the industry. But right. I don't think so. The same about other countries. Yeah, that speak in English. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That magazine. That's a tough. They they're tough. Um, <laughs> they are tough. Um, yeah, you make a good point. I mean, I mean obviously, uh, help uh, me, yes. Uh, thousands of people were helped by him. Absolutely. And I know uh, Spanish guys, uh, which there were plenty, uh, but others mm -hmm. from other countries. Italy put many regions in the map, mm -hmm. France and her regions. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think that anyone. I mean, everybody can say whatever the hell they want, of right, course, and right. voice their opinion, but right. uh, they should be a little more respectful. I think so, for too. For somebody that tastes uh, 12,000 wines, wines a, a year. year. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was I, pre precise. Uh, many people ask me and say, did he really knew about wine? I say, man, <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I presented, in, uh, the biggest tasting I presented to him was 120 wines. Mm -hmm. If we have more, which we ended up having at one point, 240 wines, we divided in two okay. days. Yep. Um, I think the margin of error by him, uh, my humble opinion, in 121 he missed three. Wow. Which is pretty. That's pretty spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, and people need to understand there was, there was you know there was like two psalms in New York in 19 in the 80s and they were both from France right and uh, I mean he really helped break open the culture and I I just I don't understand. Like agree or disagree, but I don't understand the lack of respect and understanding what he, I think he did. For, Me neither. Me neither. I, I just don't. You know, I don't know if people have to push back. Um, I wonder if, if any of these people will taste twelve thousand wines. Right, and that's the thing too. Like understanding. <laughs> I'm that, right about that. That's what I tell them. I'm like, I'm like, um, I still read, uh, you know, the critics because I get to taste a lot of wines. I don't get to taste like 
you know, Suckling's team tastes 30,000 wines a year. Like, I'm yeah. not going to taste 30,000 wines in a year. You know? Um, so this wine, um, Aro. So I've, I've just, I've, 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 he's got to bring Aro because I've never had it. And I know this got 100 from my boy Jeb. Um, uh, this is a special wine from Muga. How many times have they made this? This is a special bottling, correct? Uh, yes, a special bottling. They make of this uh, 480 cases. Wow. Yeah. And is this all Graciano? What's what's in this? Is this, uh... Uh, this is a high percentage Graciano. It's 30%. Okay. That's why uh, this wine is only made um, in good years. I mean, like nice weather conditions. Yeah. This is how... First wine was done in 2000. Okay. So, um, but they make it every three, four years. Mm -hmm. Simply because it has a lot of Graciano. Mm -hmm. And the Graciano, uh, where they have the vineyards, <laughs> which is the coolest part of Rioja, uh, it ripens, I would say, one every four years. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Because Graciano actually is a grape from Rioja Baja. Okay. So people say, is the best grape in Rioja, blah, blah, blah. The most aromatic, correcto. But it's a Mediterranean variety. And like a little bit wild. Mm -hmm. um, tendencies to produce too much. Is it Spanish in nature? That I know, yes. Yeah, okay, but yeah. I don't, I haven't get into the, yeah, no, just cause the it, genetic studies yeah. that many people get. Yeah. Which, uh, honestly, you know, to me the closest thing to a dry Riesling in certain areas of Germany could be and Albariño, mm. but th they claim that they have nothing to do with each other. Fine, I believe you. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, because uh, some some Graciano showed up in California. They thought it was um, thought it was Mataro or Monastrol, and, and no. yeah, and it wasn't. But no, it, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. This has nothing to do. Yeah, Monastrel. Yep. Good Monastrel smell completely different. Yep. Well, they didn't know. They didn't. And then some, this one guy. And I can tell you, it, coming from a guy yeah. that blended millions of liters of Monastrel. Yeah. I have some cells made out of Monastrel <laughs> going around my body every year. I'm talking about every year. So this is a complete different thing. Yeah. It's a grape found around there. Right. More, more in the lower Rioja, around the town of Alfaro, and where it ripes perfect mm -hmm. most of the years. Here in the Rioja Alta, it's very difficult. So that's why it's, you know, one, the, you know, maybe two, three years between vintages. Yeah. Because the Tempranillo obviously can be done. But because the altitude and the coolest part of Rioja also have difficulties ripening. So I, I think they start, it was very good at the beginning. The wine, but I think they are polishing the style a lot lately. Mm -hmm. And not for the fainted. Not. For <laughs> <laughs> what is the? Uh, I think a lot of people when they hear Rioja, they think Tempranillo, but there's parts of Rioja where there's Graciano in the blend, there's Garnacca in the blend. What is there? A, is there a typical blend? If you'd say like those three, or are there any other other indigenous grapes that get thrown in there that people may not know about? Yeah, people are throwing all the things they are trying to found and genetically study, and I found this white Tempranillo, but th those are minuscule minusco mm -hmm. in, 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 in front of the whole mm -hmm. picture in Rioja. Mm -hmm. You have to understand now Albariño is allowed to be grown there. Mm -hmm. I think Sauvignon Blanc too, 
for the whites to improve the 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 thing or disimprove it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't allow uh, French varieties in Spain. I would allow other white varieties in Spain, but um, because most probably they were planted before. Mm -hmm. I think the Tempranillo in certain areas with good Carnacha makes a very sexy wine. But if you, on top of that, you have excellent Graciano, it makes super sexy because mm -hmm. Graciano is a grape <coughs> that in, in Rioja Alta and Rioja La Vesa, high altitude, it has no structure, very little. It's very delicate. Mm -hmm. But the aromatics is perfume. That's why you catch in here. Yeah. And it is. Uh, having a 30% Graciano, truly Graciano in a wine of Rioja is a luxury because everybody lies in terms of the <laughs> percentage. <laughs> the, the math is the following. There is less than 1% of all grapes in Rioja is Graciano. Wow. And you look at the back of the labels, yep. the stories in the bottle, yep. and there is no one that misses 2-3%. Right. You take your own conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> the math doesn't go. <laughs> you know, I, I always critical about these things, but yeah. what we can do. Yeah. I, I would be more worried about the final quality certified by an appellation in Spain yeah. or elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, like, where are you at in the business now? I mean, you, you have your, your children here. Well, Victor and Monica are yeah. my, uh, what do you call it, lifesaver. Okay. Uh, they study at Cornell, enology, and minor in business, so... They have the right tools to continue the job. Okay. Otherwise, I will have sold the business. Yeah. I need plenty of jamón de Joselito. Yeah. I don't even, I mean, uh, listen, there's a story. Actually, it's not a story. It's true. I was there. Um, I went up to uh, Mamaronek with. Um, yes, Joe Good. Yeah, with, with Armando and Mike. Yes. And, uh, and it was to taste a bunch of your stuff. And. Uh, Apparently that guy would always you throw a, a ham bone in the middle of a pallet for him all the time, and we had Serrano. It was the first time we had Serrano ham. Like he had the whole setup. No, it wasn't Serrano. It was Iberico. Iberico, there you Grand go. Grand Reserva. So we talked to the owner. Okay. Of the factoria, who is the most exclusive ham producer in Spain, and I say, well, we have to bring some ham here. <laughs> and I say, all right. So I'll send you the ham. No problem. So completely illegal. <laughs> And so uh, then we suggested to the bonnet, the bonnet. Yeah. And that's how we came. Yeah. Until they catch us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the employees even sent it in uh, the mail system. <laughs> United States. Yeah, I know. United like, States like, post office. Like people don't even get like like trying to bring in like really good cured meats and cheeses. It's like you're, it's easier to, to mail somebody some pot. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. These days, these days it's true. Yeah. But I, mean, I don't know. This is the situation. Yeah. When I came here, being in um, Boston, the only bread that we have is the sandwich bread, mm -hmm. or similar Italian chewy plastic yep. thing, yeah, like <laughs> a fluffy <laughs> stuff. It was pretty depressing. <laughs> also, we didn't have money to go. I mean, you go to more Italian markets, and uh, it was a different world. Now you could eat good bread. Yeah. In America. Yeah. Better bread sometimes than in Spain. Wow. Yeah. So it's refreshing that the food has improved, but not enough because we have all these uh, limitations to import yeah. <laughs> uh, certain foods from around the world. Yeah. 
from others, we don't. Right. We don't have any problem of, of bringing frozen shrimp from certain countries in which they are fed with excrements, humans' <laughs> excrements. But uh, thanks but, for that picture, Jorge. But, <laughs> but but we have problems of bringing foie gras in a camp from France. I know it's very yes. weird, very weird. So. Um, like you said, they're your savers. Like I know a lot. Like in America, there's been a few big wineries where, well, not I don't know if they're big, but iconic. Yeah. And the kids didn't want, didn't want anything to do with it. Like, um, how did it make you feel? Like how did how did they get involved? Just seeing you work, and they they kind of decided to get involved, or yeah. I- I mean, I think so. I mean, I told them. I said, "Well, what I should do?" I said, "Well, you have a company here. <laughs> you have a import company here. You have wineries in Spain, five wineries in Spain. You have relationships. Um, so actually, they are continuing relationship with the next generation mm-hmm. of Egurians uh, that have been here, spending time in our house. They spend time there. Mm-hmm. So it's a natural. I mean, whether they continue or not." They could always sell the business and burn it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think they are doing a great job, and I, it takes a lot of um, of my shoulders. Yeah. And um, so I, I'm more involved in the, well, like talking today, whatever. Yep. You know, they need my help. What we should do with this problem? Boom. Uh, that's that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, the, like the plumber. Uh, yeah. In an emergency. Yeah, exactly. You, uh, I may be wrong, but yeah. I give an opinion. That, uh, that seems to them very important. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and I take more attention to the production part. Yeah, so you have five, you, five wineries that you own now mm-hmm. in, in Spain. What regions are they located in? Well, I mean, we have La Caña in okay. Rias Baixas. Yep. Um, we have uh, Avancia mm-hmm. in Valdeorras, uh, three hours from uh, going east, the same uh, latitude. Going south, three hours from Valdeorras, we have Toro. Going west, no, east again, we have uh, Breca, Garnacha land, of course. And going uh, south total, we go to, to Malaga. In Bodegas Batan in Toro, we also have a Verdejo that we make in Rueda. Okay. So it's total six uh, appellations, five wineries. Yeah. Um, you didn't bring it today, but the dry Muscatel. Yeah. That wine is ridiculous. Well, uh, that was a, a very romantic story. How, yeah, I, I want to hear that story because that wine is ridiculous. Well, I have a friend of mine that was a um, 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 study. Oh, pretend to study University of Cordoba. But finally he achieved, he finished the career of agricultural engineering. The problem, he was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, um, but he managed to work a few years in Malaga, helping the Association of Cops to provide products, fertilizer, for blah, blah, blah. So one day he called me out of the blue. Uh, said, Jorge, I found the best white wine, dessert wine from Malaga. I said, really? Yes, it's incredible. You cannot believe it, how good it is. He said, it's not dark, it's fresh, refreshing. Uh, blah, 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 blah. He keep going and said, you have to come, you have to come. So I um, I came, uh, it's like, a, that was, uh, I think he called me in, um, in September. Okay. And I was there in October. I visited the winery, was impressed. The wine was fantastic. It was made by uh, Jose Avila, the mayor of a little town called Competa in the mountains. 
Uh, he was the socialist uh, mayor of the town. Uh, next elections he lost because he only got one vote. I guess he wasn't very popular. Wow, and one uh, vote. Yes, uh, one <laughs> vote mayor. <laughs> I say, sorry, Jose. But, he but she probably got no votes because he <laughs> probably voted for himself. Did his <laughs> wife even vote for him? He should have got two. That's what I say. He, he should have got two. Yeah, the wife didn't buy vote for you. <laughs> anyway, so the wine was amazing. I brought some samples. I mm, shared them with my now defunct uh, ex-friend um, from uh, the restaurant in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, in, uh, he loved it. I brought it to a few people. I managed with a case of samples, sell 50 cases of wine, came back, let's say, we'll do it. <laughs> and then, because the wine was... Evidently, a natural wine <laughs> with the tank halfway empty, yeah. <laughs> oxidized. Uh. Uh, and so the wine was gone. So, so I say, I was determined. And then we keep fighting for it. I call all the winemakers. We try the process for three years. And finally, in the Masters of Food of Wine in Carmel, yep. California, mm -hmm. in the Grand Hyatt event every mm -hmm. year that went on cancel. I had the opportunity to meet uh, Alois Cracker. Oh, wow. Yep. A, ge a genius. Yep. Mm -hmm. And um, at 3 o'clock, drinking Cuba Libre, smoking a little cigarettes. <laughs> we closed the deal. And that was 2003. Okay. And in 2004, we opened the winery with the intention of making dessert wines, Malaga wines, classic and 45. Mm -hmm. No addition of alcohol. Okay. Because traditionally, was the way to make dessert wine there. And in Andalusia, the alcohol was only added when the English trade arrived there. Got it. And uh, as a result of that, Alois went to start working with the grapes, who was very emotional. He wanted to build a hotel there, <laughs> and, the, and he loved it. Unfortunately, the poor, the, the poor thing. Uh, um, but uh, it, he say, the second year that we make, said you had to allow me to make a dry Moscatel. Mm -hmm. I said, why? It's going to be <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> and um, f f we fought and said, hey, I'm not here if you don't allow me. And that's the result of Botani. Uh, a dry muscat. It was the first dry muscat yeah. in, done in Malaga uh, ever. Yep. And, you know, I'm very proud of it. And we make 4,000 cases of mountain vineyards. Yeah. It's very incredible, the setting there. Uh, it's like Priorat. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like very vertical. And you only half an hour away, 40, 40 minutes from the beach, maximum. Wow, wow. So, so yeah, when a, when a, uh, a famed uh, dessert wine maker says, I have to make a dry wine, you might want to listen to him. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the remarkable thing at 700 to 800 meters, about 850 meters above sea level, the Moscatel near the water, the slate, whatever, produce wines of low pH. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which, if you go with these same plants of Moscatel, you plant it at maybe 100 meters above sea level, you get a different product. Different terroir, you have quartz there between the slate. I don't know, but the, the case is, I will never bet in a million dollars, I mean, in my life, million dollars for this wine that I was going to like. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it would be something flabby and mm -hmm. too yep. kind of like perfuming yep. the match. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, let's start a little trouble. Uh, who's got a better palate, Monica or Victor? 
<laughs> no, I mean, both of them have good pala because they train. Yeah. Not, not as much as I wish because in order to train, you have to spend all the time. Yeah. When you are doing blends in Spain. Yeah. And I think little by little we're doing more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're, we're going to wrap up pretty soon. I play this game. Um, it's called FMK. Uh, fuck, marry, kill. Uh, I'm going to give you three grapes. Um, so the one you, you just get to just go to town with, one you have to marry, and, and one you can't drink anymore. Yeah, so I'm going to name three grapes, right? So I'm going to give you three grapes. Yeah. Um, and this is hypothetically. One, you, you're not going to drink again. You're going to yeah. kill it. One, you're going to marry, so you're going to see that grape every day. <clears throat> and one's your lover. You're going to, you, you, know, you, you want, a little, want a little good hot fuck, you're going to go to that grape. Okay, so. Yes. All right, so um, <clears throat> so three grapes. Uh, Garnaca, Tempranillo, and Graciano. Which grape are you fucking? Which grape are you marrying? Which one are you going to kill off? Uh, I know. Well, I mean, it's very easy to answer because I drink, but uh, I, I drink Tempranillo every day. Okay, so you're going to mar marry Tempranillo. One, one bottle, bottle and a half. So <laughs> it's a very simple answer. Okay. So uh, regarding the second, yeah. I would say Garnacha. Yeah. Okay, and then you're gonna get rid of Graciano because it's kind of. I mean, I, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if I have to. You have to, yeah. <clears throat> you force me. It's just a game. Um, Jorge, what are you most excited uh, for in the future with your your company and your just your life? What are you most excited about in the future, man? Well, um, trying to improve the quality of the wines that we make and the wines that we represent. That's the exciting part of the business. Uh, it's always something better that you can do and recommend the people. You know, over the years when the people use back oak, I went to France and I started recommending some of my producers, some, not all of them, um, better barrels of French oak and more cure and everything. So it's always a challenge. You could always make something better, mm -hmm. a way more sophisticated, when we start with the uh, the Albariños, we screw up this wine many times. <laughs> I would say a few times. Mm -hmm. Let me say three, four years. Yeah. And now I think we make a serious attempt on making uh, something good. Uh, I'm looking forward for them to take more control of the business, for us to buy vineyards, buy buildings, and stuff like that, and going fishing. Unfortunately, as much as I like to go fishing, so far this year I've been able to go three times. Ah. Three times. That's not a lot. And, you know, the sea is nearby us. <laughs> so I can see the dolphins and stuff like that. <laughs> and the fish is jumping. <laughs> but I'm in the way to someplace else. Oh, my God. Well, Jorge, thank you so much for coming in. Like I said, it's been a long time coming. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, sharing with us. Um, uh, tell people where they can find you, uh, how they can be a part of what you're doing. I guess it's just Jorge Ordonez selections.com. Yep. Yes. Okay. And I'll be sure to put that in there. I'll put their links, their social links uh, in there. So you guys make sure you follow them. And these are, these are just incredible world-class wines that if you haven't tried them, uh, you need to try them. If you haven't had them in a while, you need to try them again. And if you, 
are buying them, keep buying them because you know the quality of the wines. Uh, so everybody out there listening, don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode. That's where you'll find info on the wines we tasted, uh, the links to, uh, to uh, their social and their website. And until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, and all the wine drinkers. It's MJ. Peace.